Welcome to Get in the Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get in the Herd. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Get in the Herd After Hours. After Hours. I'm your host, Alex Bond. Uh, Get in the Herd is a recovery podcast brought to you by the McShin Foundation. Um, I'm your host. I am a person in long-term recovery from a substance use disorder, which means that I have not put a um, mood or mind-altering substance in my body since September 23rd, 2019. Just a bit about me. Um, hello, Randy, uh, watching out there. And I've got some wonderful guests on with me today. Um, why don't you introduce yourself, Joanna? My name is Joanna Vance, and I'm a person in long-term recovery from substance use disorder. And um, I am a state state organizer here in West Virginia and uh, working on being a national organizer when it comes to substance use disorder and I love being here on the podcast and all the people that come on it wonderful happy to have you on again so um we, joanna not not your first time on the show uh always wonderful to have you here uh we've got two uh two people who are new to the podcast uh new friends is what we like to call them uh new friends of the pod um Kay, why don't you introduce yourself hi my name is Shakesha. I know my first name is complicated. Shakesha, great to meet you. Yep, you said it perfectly. Shakesha, everyone calls me Kay Ellis. I am a woman in long-term recovery from opioid use disorder, which is substance use disorder. I have been clean for 10 years this past August the 8th, 2010. <laughs> recovery rock. We're recovery rock stars. And... um. I am happy to be here, and I am a state lead, as Joanna is for West Virginia. I am for New Jersey for Rope Recovery Advocacy Project. So we are really rocking recovery. We love the squad from Recovery Advocacy Project. Definitely happy yes. to have you on. Um, do you prefer Kay or Shakesha? Kay will be great. Kay, wonderful. And um, hopefully I don't mess this one up. Ramaya, is that correct? Yeah. Yes, that is correct. Wonderful. <laughs> Why don't you introduce yourself, my friend? Okay, uh, my name is Ramaya uh, Whiteside. I represent Expo, which is a nonprofit organization in Wisconsin, Expo Milwaukee. That's where uh, my home chapter is. And ex incarcerated people organizing is just what it says directly impacted person. Uh, I also I'm have the trifecta. So I've got substance abuse, I've got mental illness, and then I've got incarceration in my background. Uh, so what I do as an organizer is bring those challenges to the forefront and our returning citizens, we help them get the resources and support and treatment they need so they can live a happy, sober, sober and successful life uh, while they transition. So that's me. That's awesome. We're very happy to have uh, have you on. Uh, as Mike said, this is indeed a star-studded cast from all over the nation. Um, it, it's really cool how we can do something like this remotely and have a nice, um, diverse dialogue. I, 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 it's just really happy to have you all on. Um, Thank you. 
So I did want to kind of kind of start with Ramaya, something um, that is close to home to me, even though, you know, I may not have been incarcerated as long as um, certain other people. But I think that reentry is a very important um, tool and process that a lot of people, I think, need more services and resources to help with, um, you know, ex-incarcerated individuals. Can you kind of give me just like a quick overview of exactly how um, y'all help help um, those that have been incarcerated? Well, first and foremost, we use a, a combination of different methods. So there's no one cookie cutter approach. But one thing that's been very effective for me personally is the mentoring, peer-to-peer mentoring, which uh, and for me personally, it entailed me getting to know somebody, my mentor, prior to me coming home. So this was years before I came home. And we recommend uh, building those longer term relationships preferably with someone who knows what your struggles are going to be. So our returning citizens, there's no one within our ranks who hasn't done or seen something that they've experienced as they come home. So we can have those conversations about uh, addictions. We can have those conversations about mental health challenges. We can have those conversations about, you know, custody situations, child support situations. So the gist of what we do as directly impacted people, having gone through the system, we put it all out there and we share our experiences and our stories and we share our successes. So for instance, if I get a call, somebody struggling with housing or even, um, you know, they've got to make a choice between spending their last money on a bump or making a call and saying, hey, what can you do for me? Or will you just listen? I'm going to answer the phone. So we don't uh, force anybody's hand, but we let we let our returning citizens, hey, we're going to support you if you're pro-social and uh, uh investing in yourself and we want to let you know that we got love for you and that's how we show that we have love for ourselves so it's a hands-on approach so i'm not gonna like preach to you or judge you because you struggle we've had people that have gone through some issues um maybe they've had some challenges they know our lines are always open so if you need help picking yourself back up we're going to be there so that's our approach. It's it's no, like I said, no cookie cutter approach. Uh, we meet you where you're at and then we go from there. Glasses. No, that's really cool. I uh, I, I was curious, Joanna or Kay, either, either one of y'all, how do y'all approach kind of having those difficult conversations kind of like like um, what Ramaya was, was expressing? Because it's not easy, especially like in early recovery. I had a hard time, you know, uh, being vulnerable and being open. Do y'all have a certain technique or tactic that kind of helps people get out of their shell or i think as you were mentioning a hands-on approach is is very helpful is there any other uh tactics in having those difficult conversations you know what yes um so i i just want to say that you know after being in recovery for the time i had been um immediately after going through the pink cloud moment we all know what that is right the pink Mm -hmm. cloud moment when you you get off the opioids or your drug of choice and you're happy as hell and you're just like i want i'm gonna rule the world and then you and everything start to settle in and then you start to realize that you have to make these these decisions and choices without the drug so that's a big challenge but for me part of my biggest part of my recovery is um and i have um, an active family member today as i speak that is, is going through um bipolar schizophrenia incarceration and substance use disorder and this i am fighting for this person's life right now i'm his, i'm the person's power of attorney so i i just know that part of my recovery was reaching out to people and and getting on their level 
because I used to be a model at the time that I was suffering with addiction. So I was a woman that looked like a thousand dollars, but I was taking a thousand pills. So I realized that I have to meet people where they are. And regardless of how I look, I learned how to talk to people in hood terms because I'm from the black community. I'm a black woman. I'm a woman of color. So in, in all the in all the communities that are struggling with substance use disorder, they don't want somebody to be looking at them like, um, well, you know, you're lucky shopping at Bloomingdale's and I'm, I'm fighting for my life. They want someone that's going to be like, yo, check this out. This is a situation. If you take a drug off the street that's laced with fentanyl, you're going to die if someone doesn't have Narcan on hand to revive you. So I just know that from my own personal experiences that when you talk to people in, on their level and you let them know that we are the same people, I just cleaned up a little bit. You know what I mean? I'm a person with substance use disorder and I'm a person that wasn't on, on, on skid row, but I was damn there. Mm -hmm. No, that's, that's, that's a really good point. Joanna, I, I, I'd like to ask you. So uh, this was kind of brought up in one in a recovery coach training class that I, I do at the end of every month. I uh, do like a two day class here at McShin where we train those to become recovery coaches. And, and the, one of the questions that got raised to me was, how we can be authentic yet um, adaptable at the exact same time. I think people kind of have a, have a struggle with that of, you know, being me, finding my identity, my purpose and sticking to that while kind of as Kay was saying, being adaptable and, and being able to talk to some people a certain way and other people a certain way. Are those kind of like counter things or are we able to do both? How do we do both? <clears throat> I think that the main conversation surrounding that right there is there are multiple pathways to recovery faith-based 12-step um what a cold turkey me and Kay call it cold turkey but cold it's, it's turkey. Not yeah. solo. it goes not solo there is harm reduction there's medication assisted recovery like mm -hmm. everyone's recovery is not the same thing and mm -hmm. just because and it's our own journey. It's our own journey. Our recovery is our own journey. And it does not have to look like anybody else's. And it's okay if you feel like yours looks different because mine looks different. Um, lots of people, if you think about it, lots of people's recoveries look different. No, absolutely. I, I think kind of as Ramaya was saying, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. And I, I think as advocates in recovery, it is our job and duty and responsibility to make sure that people have as many resources as possible. Um, Ramaya, just, just kind of as like to, to check the pulse, what are some of those resources that you think Milwaukee is, um, is lacking? I know that there's a bunch, obviously, but I'm kind of asking maybe like what y'all's top priority is. I know maybe in South Carolina, it could be needle exchanges and getting out Narcan and maybe in West Virginia, it's housing. Um, what, what, what has kind of been your main focus in Milwaukee maybe as, as services? I think, I, I guess when you say housing, that's one of the first that jumped off at me. I think when you connect it to how we transition and when, you know, when people come home, so I'll do it twofold. The people that come home and they have uh, the substance abuse uh, challenges or disorders and they have the mental health challenges as well. And they're reintegrating back into the society. That's one thing. So those needs are not being met. Let's get that right off. Put that on the table. 
they're not being met. There's nobody waiting for them at the gate saying, hey, if you are on any type of uh, weaning process or if you're on anything long-term uh, medication-wise, you're lucky if you get a, a bag of something, a, a carry-all bag or um, kind of a, a doggy bag as you transition out. Maybe that'll last you two weeks. You're, right. you're Honestly, you're lucky. So that's coming home. But you also have people who perhaps they never set foot inside of institution ever, but they're on the street. So one of the things I think we could do a whole lot better before, and then, this, you know, we got the Bucks here. You got Pfizer Forum right down the street from Pfizer Forum, which is where the Milwaukee Bucks play. You you all probably know Giannis, a great guy. So like two, two blocks, yeah, two blocks from where he posterizes people at will. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the projects there. So literally two blocks and uh, in one direction, uh, coming from Pfizer Forum, downtown Milwaukee, you will come across somebody who's struggling. They're either homeless uh, and ad uh, have addiction issues or mental health challenges, or they got the trifecta as well. So what we could do better is address the mental health challenges and address. So it's not so like I don't have to feel like an alien if I go to an emergency room or to a clinic or somewhere and just reach out for help. People will more than likely have you arrested before they ask you if I can help you. So that's an issue. So coming home, people don't yeah. feel, or our returning citizens, they don't feel welcomed and they don't feel like they belong. That's an issue. That can be an overwhelming thing when sometimes when wherever we are on our road uh, in, in recovery, we'll use any excuse. We'll use any excuse, a good one or a bad one, to go the other way and make other poor choices. So a person coming home, um, being presented with that reality, we are contributing. And I'm not making excuses, but we are contributing to an unhealthy cycle. So we can do that better here locally. And like I said, back to the homeless thing, um, it's rough out there. You know, it is absolutely rough. So I think we... I don't know what system would do that, what social service system um, could just address. Uh, and maybe it's more of a, a community thing waking up and just pay attention. You know what I mean? Is that making sense? So mm -hmm. acknowledge why these people are out. Because I've, I've met some beautiful people, uh, single moms. I've met some great dads and they're homeless and they have all these other underlying issues. And what it looks like to them is nobody cares. But I've actually... Uh, and go ahead. I'll, I'll stop talking. Uh, KLS, you can get it. Just extend the program in the light of day. They say if you need something to eat or you need to know where to go to get these services, that type of PSA type types of announcement. What can okay. I do to help you? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yes. You have something? Yes. I just wanted to add to what Ramai said. Like um, I had like I said, I'm, I'm a direct power of attorney for someone that's dealing with exactly what Ramai is talking about mental illness and addiction, and he's of color. So the choice with that is, I live in Burlington County, New Jersey, right? And I'm telling you, it is so many, um, the, the foundation is so rocky for the bridge. And I think the bridge is everything. You can do 25 years in prison or 10 years or 15 years or seven years, right? You can come home and it just puts you out with no support, okay? So if you were in prison for seven years, and you were taking medication for schizophrenia bipolar, right? And they just say, oh, okay, well, you know, you're, you're, you're getting released today. Let's put you in a hotel. They think that a motel is a bridge. 
And for people that are mentally ill or with addiction, they need more than that. Because these people go right back into the system. They go back to the skip unit or back in prison within weeks or, or sometimes months from, from being home. And I really think that in my county, that's what I'm fighting for, for Recovery Advocacy Project, for the, 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 the bridge is rocky. It's like you go through all of this stuff and then you, you start, you get out of, the, of the, some part, you start crossing that bridge and it starts to break down. You can't make it to the other side because there's no support for you. So mm -hmm. I can really agree with what Ramon's saying about that. Yeah, absolutely. And and as as a follow up, I'd like to ask you, you and um, I, I know Joanna does as well. Um, Kay and Ramaya, Kay specifically, um, what what is the uh, importance of kind of having your hand on the pulse in your community? It sounds like um, y'all two do that, and I know Joanna does as well. I I try to, but I myself think that I am a bit lackluster. In the community, the larger community, I know, you know, the hundred people in this program, but not always the recovery community around me immediately. How important is it to kind of keep your hand on the pulse and understand what people's wants and needs are and being able to almost uh, premeditate them? Um, so, like, like I said, like, I just feel like I'm, I work for all of our communities people with substance use disorder, and I work for everybody. I've helped people that were Indian and Pakistani and different religions that when you, when you talk about addiction, you have to know that what their religion doesn't like to hear. Some religions be in denial, but I know for the black communities, we are dying at a high rate and we're not getting no press or none of this stuff. So I, I honestly think that the black community is stuck in a situation where a lot of us are, are products of our environment. Like we, we, we be like, okay, our, our world is falling around behind, around us, but let's go get our kids some Jordans. Um, let's go get our kids PS5. I mean, some of our communities are just stuck in a funk where they don't realize that we are dying. Our, our, our color is dying from addiction and mental illness. We're slipping through the cracks. So for me, when I go out and I do my talks in, in all communities, I talk in layman's terms. I know a lot of white kids, Chinese kids. I've spoken at so many schools. And these kids be like, yo, you down with Jay-Z? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm down with Jay-Z. Like, what's up? <laughs> so the kids really be like, Rockefeller, you know what I mean? <laughs> Put your diamonds in the air, you know what I mean? So the kids really relate to me. And I feel like it don't matter what color they are. People are dying and, and, and they're looking for hope. And parents are scared. And they're just like, Oh my God, my kid! I don't know what to do. He's he has a four point oh GPA. Um, what do I do? Like, I feel like, you know, I, I don't. He's not an addict. Is he a pillhead? He's a dope fiend. Like, we have to break the stigmas. We have to yep. use the right terminology when addressing addiction, or people will never want to get help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, that right terminology is is very important. Joanna, do you have something? I just want to add on to that, like. Please. People are dying. Yes. We are facing a epidemic upon a pandemic and suicide rates and overdoses are skyrocketing. We ain't even going to talk about the war on drugs that started years ago. Mm. But alongside of the, hunt, the thousands and thousands and thousands of people that die to overdose, and suicide, like, 
we have been facing a excuse me if i don't use the right language like a social a racial a recovery community i live in a state where there's 93 percent white folk <laughs> so if i want to help my other seven percent of people here who very much are in reform and reentry, mental health, all of those other things. Like, what are the steps that a white ally or organizations can take to help uh, with our marginalized communities? <laughs> I think if um, just the, the the simplest route or the shortest route to get to that connection is building that relationship. So one thing I know about addiction or about mental mental health or about what happens uh, when you do a stint or you do a bid is you're gonna go where you feel comfortable, you're gonna go where you feel welcome. And I know pain recognizes pain. So that's one thing I know from experience. I know we all know from experience. So if you're reaching out uh, in empathy and compassion, that that jumps off fences, it goes through okay. all walls. So that right there, um, I think people will gravitate towards you being authentically you and you being genuine and you, they know you speak from experience. So mm -hmm. if I know that you're there reaching for me and you're supportive, then all of those other facades are gonna fall to the wayside because what I'm gonna, what I'm gonna grab on uh, with all my might, because this is my lifeline, what you're offering me is a, is a tethering to this world because it's either I take this last bump or I take my life or I give it a shot at what you're offering. And I really don't care that you are of another ethnicity because I'm about to, I'm about to smash out of here. So if you're reaching for me and sending me that lifeline, I'm going to hold on to it. So that's what we have to really reinforce and support each other and say, I don't care about all that other stuff. You know, the political pundits and the opportunists, they can do all that. They get paid a lot of money to do that. What I care about is helping you live from to get to another day. Let everybody else who get paid to keep us apart or keep us separated. That's not my focus right now. So if I can get you from today to tomorrow, that's a success. Mm -hmm. We'll worry about tomorrow when we get there. So mm -hmm. that's your extension. That's your bridge across all these different uh, labels of divisiveness that keeps us apart. It is not wrong or illegal or constitutionally invalid for me to have compassion for another eth ethnic group, period. Great. Great. So, so, yeah, just, just, just to like reiterate to make sure I'm hearing you correctly is a genuine empathetic connection. Correct. Wonderful. Would you like to add on to that, Kay? No, I just 100% agree with him because I, I just feel like, um, you know, when we we are all warriors and I, and I feel like when you go through recovery, it changes who you are. Like I was the most selfish person in the world. I wasn't giving a damn about nobody. I didn't have no kids. It was just me. But now as I look back, I'm like, my compassion came back. And I feel like that is what matters to be able to reach out to someone and be like, Hey, look, I walked in your shoes, period. And I went through what you went through. I can, I, I know what, what a withdrawal feels like. Mm -hmm. I know what it feels like to be falling asleep.
for 15 minutes and thinking that you slept all night, that's hell on high waters. So to be able to have that lived experience and be able to connect to the person, I, I just think that's so that's that is where my heart lies right now. Nah, Period. Right. Yeah, Slept sure. all night and woke up on a Tuesday, not knowing what was going on. Okay. <laughs> I think one other thing that really that's really important, especially for people when they come home, or especially, I mean, I watched my mom go through. I watched just about just about every woman within my uh, uh, matriarchal system within my family struggle with either mental health challenges or addictions. So, and I'll just speak from personal experience with my mom and she taught me early on, I used to watch her get high. Um, and I really didn't understand the significance of it or whatever, but, um, I did later on in life, but sometimes you get so lonely or so rejected, so abandoned, the world can really beat, beat, beat you down. Okay. So that, that's a fact. So I never understood how it beat her down. She's a beautiful woman. I mean, uh, women in general are, are, are beautiful. But, but mom, I watched her just get just beat down incessantly. And then you got everybody that makes all these judgments. Well, single black mom and you can't control your kids. And then she was going back and forth with the family court. Just just add all that on. And then when I got older and all the issues that I was having, I said, damn, I kind of know why she was making you know she ran over here i understood it better but for me to come back and to judge somebody and say because you are black white hispanic tall short whatever i'm gonna deny you some peace peace of mind that's one thing that's not my call mm -hmm. i would never do that from my struggles that i because i i know what it feels like I would never do that to another human being because I don't want to be a catalyst to you taking your last breath. I don't want to watch you take your last breath. Been there, done that. And then I'll, I'll, I'll pass it back off with this. We have kids attached to us. I was one of those kids. I was a throwaway kid. So people knew my mom was getting down and doing what she was doing. And because of the demographic I lived at, you know, it felt like the world didn't care. So that's one point I want to touch on. Our returning citizens and people that go through these struggles, the majority of us have kids. We have kids that look up to us. We are their first and foremost role models. So if you don't give a damn about Ramaya or Kay or Joanna, you, hey, you can write us off. What about these kids? The most beautiful future investment we could ever have are the kids. So you can go and have disagreements and we can have political different ideologies we can argue all day long but one thing you could never ever argue you lose it is what's better for our kids going forward and that's for all of us to help with mm -hmm. yes. well for sure i mean studies have shown that like uh love is intrinsic and hate is learned at, at the end of the day is that like no no one grows up with hate in their heart or racial tendencies those are learned things from the experiences of the people that they were watching taught them mm -hmm. uh, essentially um i think that's a great point i, I also just wanted to add to say uh kind of to reiterate you know this disease didn't give a shit about my age race color sexual identity mm -hmm. or tax bracket so why should we recover giving a shit about any of that stuff either? Um, right. So it's kind of like get on, get on. Like, yeah. Like that, I mean, when we go in circles, that, that's one of the things that truly upsets me more than anything 
because I mean, I won't preach to the choir. We've all seen it. We've all seen what happens when you feel like I, I just don't want to do it no more. Mm-hmm. So we all know what it feels like to be judged. And it's like, and, 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 I, and as a man, you know, I'm, 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 I'm very okay with being vulnerable, being emotional because I've seen it all. And I really don't care what people think to the extent, to the extent that I can share and show my emotions. I've seen it to the extent I don't want to see it again. Because I'm still here to deal with the aftermath of picking up the pieces of why this little girl, why this little boy is not going to see their mom again. That's what we got to help. You know, that's a bigger that's a, a bigger part of this picture. So getting back to what really frustrates me is that judgment that your issue is more of a Beverly Hills issue and mine is more of a, the other side of the eight mile track issues. But at the mm-hmm. end of the day, that bump could be your last, just like it could be my last. And mm-hmm. we don't have time for that in these circles. I don't Betty Ford or 12 steps. I don't care. Get right. I just want to mm-hmm. see you get right. For sure. That's kind of like, uh, ad, like first world problem stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There are listen. I, I say this all the time. Like my mom say, like there are many pathways to recovery. And when I first recovered, right, I was going through the pink cloud woman for a long time, and so I felt like I was on top of the world until stuff started really settling with me, and I realized that I had to go through all this stuff without waking up, eating a bowl of oatmeal, and popping six pills. I had a thirty-five a pill day habit. I was taking 35 pills a day in the height of my addiction. I was taking so many pills that the DEA was looking for me. They thought I was running a prescription drug ring because they couldn't figure out how the hell was I getting hundreds of pills from all these different doctors all over different states. So at the end of the day, I say that to say that, look at me now. I used to be a model. I love fashion. I love hair and nails. And I love to look great. And I looked beautiful. Joe, stop. (laughs) I love Joe so much. I looked beautiful in the height of my addiction, but guess what? I was 97 pounds. I looked like Skeletor. So I'm like right now I look very healthy. I look very healthy. I'm thick. I I, I weigh like 145 now, but at the height of my addiction, I was 97 pounds and you can see the bones in my neck, my face under here. I look really sick. And so Everybody thought I was winning. And guess what? I did too. I thought I was winning. I was like, I'm a model. I got money. The guys love me. I'm popular. I got a nice car. Listen, I was dying. And what happened, Kay? Tell us. Tell us what active use of all those pills did you? I, I, I abused opioids for nine years. I was taking, you know, at the height of my addiction in 2009, I started losing my hearing. I couldn't figure it out. So everything was sound like muffled, like I was coming out of a nightclub. And I was still using at the time. Mind you, at the time of my addiction, in the beginning of my addiction in 2000, I never did drugs in my life. Never. I never smoked a cigarette, drank or did anything. So to wound up nine years later, a full-blown addicted person. And in tw- in 2009, I started losing my hearing. So I couldn't figure out what the hell was happening. And then I went to see a doctor and he was saying to me, Miss um, Ellis, um, I'm sorry. I can't give you any more. Laura said hydrocodone. 
I can't give you any more tramadol. And I lost my mind in that office. I said, what? What are you saying? Like, what are you telling me? Like, really? Like, I'm in pain. And I really wasn't. I was addicted to the medication. Mm-hmm. But at this time in 2009, as as the months went went by, I was seeing different audiologists. And at one point, I woke up one day on my couch in Delaware, and I couldn't hear nothing at all. I was fully deaf. I went fully deaf in nine months from um, the opioid use disorder and the fact that I was taking so many pills for so long. And I went deaf from them, and I'm, I'm fully deaf as we speak today. But I'm talking with a smile because... Some of our darkest moments make us who we are. Some of our darkest moments, we'd be like, like, why me? Why is this happening to me like right now? Like, I can't do this right now. But what I realized in my recovery in the 10 years that I've been in recovery is that things will get better. We learn how to deal with things. We learn how to deal with people's energies. We learn that negative people is a no-go. Bye-bye. I have zero tolerance for negativity. And I know Joe is laughing because on, on Facebook, my favorite word is blocked. <laughs> you said block. I block everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can give zero dams. I block everybody. And I, I just I just feel like in my recovery, the best things, the the best things that kept me afloat was my spiritual religion, um, scriptures, praying. And I tell people all the time. Like Ramon say, enjoy, and we, like we all agree, there are many pathways to recovery. Never look down on someone because they didn't follow 12-step program. And I know that people look down on me and said, oh, we don't want you. We, um, I'm sorry. We can't have you speak at our organization because you're not 12-step affiliated. I'm like, what? Are you serious? How do you tell somebody they can't speak at your, at your program because they didn't follow 12 steps when people are here like, well, maybe... I, I might find Jesus Christ. Maybe I might, maybe, maybe God might say, maybe yoga. Um, maybe I might start working out. Maybe we don't know what your higher being may be. It could be anything. We don't know what people's higher beings is. It, it could be religious, spiritual. It could be, you could be Muslim, any religion. And you might find that bring you out. You know what I mean? You might find medicated. You might, you might be suboxone. You might use methadone. But I look right. at that and say, if you are alive, and and like Ramon said, something powerful. Guess what? Somebody told me this tonight, something that you said in exact words. Worry about that moment in time at that moment. Don't worry about tomorrow. If this person's alive now and he has a situation that's making it better for him, that's all that matters at that moment. That's so important. We'll worry, we'll, we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Let's just get yes. through right now. Yep. Absolutely. That's important. I'm, I'm I'm a big advocate of that. So um, I want I wanted to ask um, y'all two have have brought up your um, past and support of helping those with uh, co-occurring disorders, so mental health illness as well as substance use disorder. And um, I, I wanted to know if if um, I I agree that all of us have the capability to recover. And I want to know if that might put people at a disadvantage a little bit, or if there are other things that might be considered a disadvantage when trying to find recovery. Not to focus on the negative too much, but I just kind of like maybe we can focus our efforts a little bit if, if there are any disadvantages. Um, I, I know Kay brought up the fact that black people are dying, dying at, at an alarming rate. I, I, I just kind of wanted to 
throw that out there if y'all had any thoughts on major disadvantages. I'm going to say this and it can trigger anybody to say whatever they want, but competition between behavioral health to get ad numbers on taking advantage of and helping the recovery community with support through mental health, behavioral health, all of those agencies, peer support, all of that. Clarify what you what, what you mean. I don't know if I, I quite understand what you were saying, Joanna, or, or maybe someone else can clarify. I, I, I think it was maybe cutting in and out. Okay, so different behavioral health organizations across the state compete for I don't know okay. intakes or recovery numbers all of that and then kind of I, I was in a peer focus study today and with a couple other people from different states said so this is great and they were talking about how and we all agreed that within the state that peers are put in for peer support and then those people are basically like put against each other because they all work for different organizations like am I making sense at all yeah. Yeah. Sure. Well, I, I, I think I understand now that you can kind of pit people with different behavioral health and mental health against each other. Not like we in the recovery community want to do that, but when it comes down to us being people in recovery, working jobs for a behavioral health organization yeah. and the difference of us doing it, then that kind of, kind of cuts us against each other. Maybe sure. Competition. Competition. sure. Yeah. I mean, I can say on behalf of, um, you know, I, I don't want to like represent McShin, but I know that this place is definitely going to help people with a substance use disorder the way that it is designed more than it is people with uh, a mental health illness. Um, it, it can definitely help people with both. But this place just isn't designed to help people with a primary like we'll say 90% mental health illness and maybe a little bit of substance use. Um, it, it's designed for people with a co-occurring and, and uh, substance use disorder, but maybe not uh, strictly mental health side. Um, it's just, we're, we're not equipped to handle it because we're not a medical facility or, or anything like that. Um, so that does happen. So it's, it's, from going through even on the inside and on uh, on the outside. So when you come back, like what, it, this has a whole lot of other uh, strings attached to it, but they look at, I mean, people make decisions, insurance companies make decisions, these big corporations make decisions on basically what can we get the biggest bang for our buck? Who are we going to help? You know, how much funding can we get from the government if we follow this track? So mm -hmm. uh, with that type of competition going on, um, we learn within our survival skills where to, to get our needs met. A lot of us do. So a lot of times I think it's not as glamorous to be an addict or to have substance abuse disorder. It's not glamorous, but I can fly up under the radar and get certain treatments uh, or, or go through certain pathways for mental health challenges. But here's, here's, here's the, the crux of that. So if I can get my mental health challenges addressed or my other reentry issues addressed, but I'm not addressing um, uh, the substance abuse stuff, I'm I'm fooling myself. So, and one more thing, I'll say this: underlying all of that is for me is a is a trauma. 
there's something that happened. Okay, I wasn't born so happy that I just wanted to see what heroin was like or crack or whatever. I wasn't born like, hey, I just want to try that. I mean, even though we are born curious, not like that. So something happened in my life that was a little bit too much. It was sensory overload. And then you continue to add to that and you continue to add to that and you continue to add to that. Well, I found some relief over here that also I was drawn to from birth. I was I had a predisposition to be to have certain challenges. That's because mom did what she did. So that's all the medical stuff. So here's where I'm getting at. It's a little bit more glamorous to say I need the help and the funding from this program because I have bipolar or PTSD or whatever, a schizoaffective disorder, whatever it is. That's a little more glamorous and they'll put the velvet gloves on and they'll help Ramaya make it. But if I tell you I'm a crackhead, crack addict, or uh, 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 I, I bust that, that rig out or anything like that, it's all hands off. So let's, let's, let's just put everything on the glass. That's a big mm -hmm. issue. Corporate America gets a pat on the back for helping mental health challenges, and they get a bigger check. Now, hopefully, we're, we're transitioning to addiction has an ugly side. And it's every it's America's dirty little secret. So the truth to the war mm -hmm. on drugs is what we're doing right now. We're cleaning it up. So that's not very glamorous for corporate America to say because they want us to do this. It's a choice. That's okay. why. It's not okay. So 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 I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I just want to make sure that I'm I'm, I'm being <laughs> I'm I'm being clear I, honestly because you're educating me. At the same time, I know uh, that's why I ask most of these questions, because I personally want to know. Um, so you can actually what I'm hearing you say is that it could be an advantage to have a mental health illness when Absolutely. it comes to finding treatment. OK. Absolutely. OK. Or, so, or, I want to add this one. Or also people were too young to not know that they were self-medicating for any other issues when they started using drugs. So after they find recovery, they are just now realizing anything that comes around mental health disorders, everything and realizing, oh, man, I got to do this <laughs> from here now here in my recovery. OK, mm -hmm. I, I, I definitely know some people who have said upon entering recovery that they now know that they have been self-medicating their undiagnosed ADD or yeah. even, even from, from the um, training that I have done know mm -hmm. that people have been diagnosed ADD for trauma because usually a lot of the symptoms that show up for attention deficit disorder are actually for trauma. So we're giving these kids Ritalin and mm. treating them like they have ADD instead of mm -hmm. talking to them and getting therapy for them for their trauma. Is that yeah. check out, okay? Yep. I, I worked in the mental health field for 20 years. And even when I was in active addiction, I was working for um, DIFIS, which is like children's services over here in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, DIFIS and DHS. So I had DIFIS and DHS cases. I wasn't working directly through the state, but I had a lot of cases with kids that were taking Ritalin. And it was just like, okay, some, some of these kids had traumatizing backgrounds and they were already predispositioned, had a predisposition and didn't know. So I'm wondering how these kids are doing now, now that, you know, we're grown. But what you guys are saying is so true. Like you just, it's, it's so many hooks and curves and things like that. And Mike Ty is on here and I love him so much. Love Ty! Mike. 
I love Mike Todd so much. He's like my family. I so love him. And Randy Randy Anderson is another mentor of ours from from Recovery Advocacy Project. We love them. But Todd is saying so many things on here, and the screen just going by, and I'm like, I want to, I want to like it, but I'm just like, I don't want to mess up my sound so I can hear everything. But um, it, it's real out here, and and addiction doesn't discriminate, and mental illness is real, and I just think that it's so hard dealing with both situations together because it's like, okay, if you have mental illness, right, you're going to use, you're more likely to use drugs just because of that, right? Now. You can use drugs and spiral into a mental addiction situation. So it's like, they. I always say this all the time. There's so many people out here living in happy homes with white picket fences. And they got big, cute dogs like Joanna got. That, where that Dalmatian girl? <laughs> they got you cute dogs. Hear, see what Mike Todd just said. And so, like, people have everything, Right. And it just be like, our lives are wonderful. We got money in the bank. Our kids are in great schools. We are winning. And people are not taking care of their mental health. They're not doing that. That's the problem. They're not. They're not. And when I do my lives, I get up on the screen like this, Alex. I'm like, you're not doing your jobs. <laughs> get back to work. <laughs> yes, get back to work. Get back to work. Like people are not realizing that. Mental illness and addiction runs together. You can have either or, and you can never have neither neither or, and you can be affected by both of them. You know what I mean? So we just have to really understand that I, I'm a woman that never had mental illness, right? But with all of the COVID, I've been in quarantine for a year. I can spiral into a dark place because of that, because of me not taking care of my mental health and all the stuff I'm carrying. I'm carrying all these other people's burdens. Yeah. So we just have to look at all of that stuff and the fact that sometimes people look at mental illness like, okay, we'll help him. We're more likely to help somebody with mental illness. But if you on crack or they calling you a dope fiend, you're less likely. They're looking at you like, okay, so what do we treat first? You treat what's going, what's, what's the crisis? What's, what is first? Did the sure. person overdose? So what do you treat first with the co-occurring disorder? Mm-hmm. You treat what's in crisis at that moment first, and then you deal with the other stuff. If the person overdosed, you got to take them and put them in detox and figure out what, what's going on with that situation. If a person have a mental breakdown, you got to handle that first. Mm-hmm. And people don't understand that, Joe, right? No, I'm about to break it down for just like 30 seconds real quick. I've okay. never even shared this on my Facebook or openly. So this is like a mission exclusive. Um, in my coach, the coach, I shared this, but... Okay, so not only am I a person in recovery from substance use disorder, but I am a person in recovery that has survived a suicide attempt in my recovery. Did I want to use drugs? No. Did I use drugs? No. Did I want to die? Yes. Did I act on those? Uh, did I act out on those idolations? Yes. Thank God I lived, and thank God I was smart enough to reach out to somebody and get help and a doctor to talk to people and tell people in my community. That's why I can talk about this live, even though it's on Facebook. Hey, everybody. <laughs> but for real, and but that's something that's stigmatized also when a person in recovery goes in to get help. For mental health all it stems back to is oh that's a trigger and you just want to use 
No, I got real people problems that I worked real hard for. And I am, I want, I am upset that it still sucks that bad. Yes, Joe. I know your whole story. I know your whole entire story. You're a warrior. Definitely. Um, for sure. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, I, I did want to ask um, Ramaya. Th this is just something. Things just pop into my head. That's how I like to treat this show. Um, so I have noticed that at least in the last, I'll say, five years or something like that, the trend in some pop culture, uh, specifically music a lot of times, it's kind of trendy to say be depressed. And depressed is a very serious mental health issue um mm -hmm. does that mean because people are kind of like i don't know maybe capitalizing off of it that it's not taken as seriously the same way that substance use has in the past i mean i know plenty of people myself included who listen to certain types of music that could say hypothetically be like triggering or stigmatizing um mm -hmm. but I don't know. I feel like it's kind of like jumping on a certain trend now with mental health right now where, uh, you know, a lot of the music is kind of like it's it's trendy to be sad, essentially, when it's actually hijacking very serious mental health. Uh, Ramaya, do you have any like opinions on that? I, I mean, I think you hit it. That's a very good question. You hit on something that is kind of the glamorization of mental health or the glamorization, like the the selling out of real people problems okay sure. so now they take what we've historically had to do from surviving some serious issues like trauma like going to theater or going to different war zones or living in a war zone or some of those life challenges that you know we watched our loved ones go through they've taken all of that real life stuff out and then inserted uh for the glamorization of it how I think, like you said, they make songs about it. It's a part of pop culture where different breakup songs or different uh, uh, scenarios where people look at that with like uh, blinders on. You know what I mean? So to to sell to get up upwards in the charts or to sell a certain product, they'll sell depression. But they won't call it depression. They won't call it clinical depression. They won't give you the backdrop or the ingredients, which is um, some people don't recover from that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They always give you a condensed version of um, how it's cool to feel this way. But somehow, uh, through my own force and will, I made it and now look at me on cloud nine. So let me explain what that means. I'm So if you can't do that, that means there's something wrong with you. You see, we see. So mm -hmm. the the people sometimes we look up to in the hip hop culture, the other scenarios who say, well, that was just a phase or something I controlled to go in and go out. So I'm down and I'm blue and it's like, whatever. When I'm blue, my mind is working and I can conceptualize all these things. And it's it's wonderful. No, it's not. When you're clinically depressed or you or, or you or you're, you're manic and you're up and down just like this, none of that stuff is a cakewalk. But the people pushing these songs are misguiding our youth and misguiding us to not take it as serious as it is. So mm -hmm. it's not just depression. It could also be these other manic phases where, uh, uh, case in point, uh, the restlessness or uh, PTSD uh, uh, symptoms. So all that stuff is especially for my demographic, like I grew up a certain way. 
never knew it was abnormal until I was around people that didn't fidget or didn't look at the door or or couldn't tell you if you were upset just by your footsteps. I can hear you walking in the house and how your feet hit the ground. I can tell you whether or not you're going to beat my butt or you're angry just from footsteps. I can tell how you open or close the door, whether it's not going to be a good interaction or a bad interaction. So anyway, what I'm getting at is they glamorize uh, uppers and downers in these blue states. Okay. And that, that helps contribute to our younger people when they get in these scenarios, they don't reach for help because yeah. then they internalize not being able to pull themselves out. Like, uh, I can't even think of some of their names right now. Uh, you mean and they're very, yeah. Like, I'm trying to like, think like yeah. Huh? So yeah, so they make well, it seem like the other hey, guy. What's the other rapper? I can't. Oh, Post Malone. Post Malone. Are you talking about people that got excused or? I said rappers. So she said Little Wayne. Let's say Kodak Black. But I don't know if we're <laughs> where we gathered putting those people together. Well, no. <laughs> the, the the narrative there was they have glamorized what we go through and suffer through. They glamorize mm -hmm. it and they make money off of it. But the real life people like us, we suffer through it, and sometimes we don't make it. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's yeah. so true. We have to yeah, we yeah. have to teach our kids. We have to keep talking to the kids. My my my. I know we ending this now. I just want to say this at the end of the day. When people ask me, because I just wrote a book that came out. It's called A Life of Chaos, and um, this is me on the book twenty two years ago. I was in the beginning of my addiction. On his book, wow. I was I was 27 when my addiction started. But I just want to say this: when I when I started writing this book, I wrote this book during quarantine. It's 58 pages long, and I said to people, they said, "What is your target audience?" I said, "Everybody, grandmoms, grandpops, kids, teenagers, little just everybody. Nobody is exempt from addiction. Period. Mm -hmm. And yes, the rap is playing a big part. That is is setting a tone where kids are like." I'm popular if I'm getting high and I'm not getting no help because yeah. I'm cool. I know people like this that I work with we're literally in different states now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, the, I asked specifically because like I I love hip hop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm hip hop all day. He's, and, he's uh, freezing. I'm freezing in my back end. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I ask because it's an important part of kind of like who I am. He's still freezing. Yep, a little bit. I can kind of follow his narrative though. I mean, I love it too. Don't get me wrong. Listen, um, while he's not freezing, I just want to say thank you both for being very personal and everything about some hard questions like that people might would want to know about BIPOC and, and just communities and especially recovery related, mental health related, everything because I want to leave room for those people so I can be educated and understand how I can help and what I can do or what I need to sit my ass down and not do. Like, and I think that it's very important that there's a lot of white allies. I've been on TikTok for, <laughs> I've got a good algorithm on TikTok, but there's a ton of white allies and it's important that they are 
organized mm-hmm. of how they can be most beneficial. So and if that's, that's, that's it, the conversation that you guys are having, like in your communities and stuff, like it certainly needs to be. Right. I agree. So if I can be helped. Please. Um, what, what, what I was really trying to say was that, like, I don't know. I, I totally agree with what Ramaya was saying. Like, when, when you have Post Malone, who's got always tired, as if that's kind of like a cool thing, it's, right. that's like an actual sign of, of mental health illness and stuff like that. The problem, that, yes, it glamorizes it, makes it trendy. The worst problem is that it normalizes it, and it makes people... Mm-hmm. Think other people think that my feelings are normal. I'm just like everyone else. I just need to get over it by myself. And that's just like substance use disorder. That's that's you know part part of why I'm here is to talk to kind of bring it bring it full circle. And I think that a lot of things in culture have done that is normalize uh, drinking and and you know using. Uh, I, I don't you know, watch a lot of TV, but that's kind of part of my bag is TV, movies, and music. And you watch a lot of things and and you know, a detective who's an alcoholic is like cool, but it's actually got like a really weird taste in my mouth when I watch stuff a little bit nowadays because it's kind of this like archetype or whatever. I was just kind of wondering y'all's thoughts on it and um, just go around the horn and get some uh, closing thoughts from y'all before we wrap up or, or before the uh, internet kicks me off again. Ooh, I would say <laughs> this and then I'll, they can have it. Stigma addressed through media. The Sam Project. Ask Todd about it, Alex, or I'll send you the synopsis. For sure. Like. <laughs> uh, mine's just quick. I think th- these conversations that we have now from all over the place, I think our, our, like I said earlier, pain is pain and our struggle is, it's the same. So you could take, you could just strip all those layers, do your onion, do the onion, the onion dance. And when you strip those layers off, we're the same. Okay, so just picture an onion when the next person you see that's got all this stuff going on in their lives. When you when you make when they do that onion dance, you'll see we're all coming from the same spot. So as far as having allies, cross-cultural allies across different groups, uh, we all have to be committed to get better, because if I watch you struggle and do nothing, then I lose a part of myself. That's the intrinsic nature of of why we do this. That's why I care. I cannot watch you die without dying right along with you. It's not possible. Yes, that is so true. That is a powerful statement. Mama, that's a very powerful statement. Any final words, Kay, before we close out? I just want to say thank you to McShin Foundation and Alec and my girl Joanna for having me out today. Mama, it was wonderful meeting you. Hopefully we can follow each other on social media. And for Joanna, I love her so much. Like, I met her and immediately clicked with her. And so my dedication to her is the song by Cool in the Gang. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always singing Joanna. <laughs> always singing that song to her. But I, I just, I, I think that we have to stick together and we, we, we have to keep having these conversations because a lot of people are un- uncomfortable with this type of conversations about mental illness and addiction in all the communities. And we have to protect our children. We have to talk to them about predispositions and the fact that 
Me, I was a person that became addicted because I had addiction that ran in my family. And I was wondering how I was at 27 becoming addicted that late in age when I had skated through my whole early years and my teenage years and all that young adult. I, I became an addict at 27. So let's keep the conversations open. Thank you for having me, Michelle Foundation Alec. And if you guys want to have me back at any time, I'm here for you guys because I just feel like we could have saved we we've saved a lot of lives tonight. Just just being having this conversation. We've we've saved lots of lives tonight. Thank you so much for having me. No, I really appreciate having y'all on. Um this is broadcast to like jails all over the place too. I mean oh, we've had so people wonderful. On, on the show recently that watched our stuff in jail come into the program and then are on the show with us. So like this that stuff will will definitely uh get a lot of eyes and ears for sure. Um cool. So I, I just really appreciate y'all's energy and insightfulness. Ramaya, Kay, always wonderful. Uh, thank you, um, Joanna, very much. I really appreciate your empathy. And, um, you know, I, I will say that we got these new T-shirts that Todd got. Uh, so we will definitely try to hit y'all up for them. If anyone watching wants one, just hit us up on Facebook. Um, I want one because I shared the post to promote the stuff and I still didn't get one. I didn't win that. Everyone that shared host of ours got a t-shirt, we'd be gone by the end of the week easily. But you'll get you'll definitely get one. Uh, I really appreciate having y'all on. Big shout out to our producer, Todd. Um, if you're struggling, please reach out to us um, at the McShin Foundation, 804-249-1845. Um, until next time, y'all, thank you so much. Yep. This has been uh, awesome. Getting the Herd. Peace out. Hi, everyone. I'm Honesty Liller. I am the CEO of the McShen Foundation and a woman in long-term recovery. Since May 27, 2007, I have not used drugs or alcohol. Woo-woo! Thank you so, so much to the Richmond Times Dispatch and all of our voters for getting the Herd podcast. Those podcasts are amazing. Not only has it helped thousands upon thousands of people in their recovery, as well as family members, but it has helped me in my personal recovery. I get to listen to them now in my car through Spotify and iHeartRadio. And it's just really, really important for us to be innovative in the addiction field and the recovery community. So when COVID hit, we had to be innovative. You know, we really had to think of like, what can we do to reach people that cannot go to 12-step meetings? smart recovery, faith-based, whatever, um, that we're shutting down constantly. So we were innovative here at McShin. Let's start podcast. So with Todd, John, Alex, um, and some other staff, you know, we all just kind of jumped in who can do what. And um, with Todd's lead and John's lead, the podcasts have been amazing and we're still doing them today. So I want to thank you for all of your votes and all of your energy and all of your support of our mission of healing families and saving lives. Thanks.